This evening I want to talk about and explore the stages of the spiritual journey. And I was especially inspired to develop this theme uh, by a few things. One of them was um, as a way to honor the poet Mary Oliver. I have her photos of her here. As many of you know, maybe some of you don't know, she died in January of this year. And I thought of her poem called The Journey, which we have copies of and which uh, I'll read. And I also was uh, reflecting on having just come two days ago from being with about 90 retreatants for the whole month of March. There were uh, about 20 people who were on retreat here at Spirit Rock up the hill in February and March, and about 70 people who just did the month of March. And we have teams for either February or March. So I was part of the team for March and was just came from working very closely with people, you know, meditating 16, 18 or more hours a day and helping to guide them on their own journeys and noticing how things developed. And so I wanted to, in a way, bring those together to talk about uh, the stages of again, what we might call, using a metaphor, the spiritual journey. And the journey is one of the metaphors we use for talking about spirituality, uh, our inner lives, our deeper values, whatever language we use. And it's an interesting metaphor. It suggests that in some way we leave home and go somewhere hopefully learn things, and typically come back home for the better. That's the spiritual journey, right? And uh, it's one of a lot of metaphors. There are all sorts of metaphors for what we call spiritual life. There are metaphors of um, what um, being on a path, very similar. I'm on a spiritual path, very similar to a journey, but maybe a path is a little bit more uh, kind of the the image of walking along uh, a little trail that's been carved out of the wilderness. Or we can have the metaphor of awakening. That's the central metaphor in Buddhism, that we are as if asleep and we wake up, right? That's a core metaphor. Or we have the metaphor of uh, seeing through the veils of illusion. Another very common metaphor that we don't see clearly. There are veils, veils over our eyes and we somehow, the veils are lifted by spiritual practice. Or the metaphor of uh, liberation we are as if slaves and we become free. Much like the metaphor of the movement of the exodus from bondage to liberation, you know, of the ancient uh, ancient, uh, Hebrews. Or we may use a metaphor of purification. You know, we purify our beings of that which gets in the way of love and wisdom, however we talk about it. So the journey is one of these metaphors and it's used in so many traditions, right? Some sense of a journey. You know, uh, you know, uh, a wanderer uh, who goes through life learning. There's a, you know, some, there's a, where is this? There's an old song Some of you know I am a poor wayfaring stranger (laughs) journeying through this world of woe but there is no sickness, toil, and danger in that bright world where I go. 
you know, very, very ancient song, or we have the, uh, you know, we have the vision quest of Native Americans where they go on a kind of a, uh, a journey out from the usual. So the, often the meaning of a journey is that we leave what's habitual and ordinary and we go somewhere else where we learn. Uh, the Australian Aborigines had a walkabout. The, in the, uh, uh, the Chinese Taoist tradition, there's the sense of the way. And we have this metaphor of the way, very common in different traditions. You know, Jesus says at one point, I am the way. You know, you take your journey with me. Uh, one Taoist master from China, Tu Lung, said, one who travels does so in order to open one's ears and eyes and relax one's spirit. <laughs> That's why you journey. In the Upanishads, ancient text of India, long and narrow is the ancient path, the path by which the wise, knowers of the timeless, attaining to liberation, depart hence. We find the metaphor of the the way in, in Islam, among Sufis, there's a sense of a path, so common. This is uh, from the uh, American poet Walt Whitman. I am afoot with my vision. I tramp a perpetual journey. (laughs) Continually on the journey. And the last reference I wanted to give was more from the 1960s where many people took trips. (laughs) Same metaphor, right? And uh, I guess that's still used at times, right? Still used the sense of <laughs> taking a trip. <laughs> yeah, so let me, let me read this uh, poem, and you have a copy of it. And what I want to invite you to do is to listen to the poem and see if you can hear distinct stages. Because what I'm going to be doing is talking about seven stages of the spiritual journey. I think you can find them in the poem. And I'm going to sort of broaden that sense uh, of seven stages. Use the poem as one reference point and also use the life of Buddha as a second reference point for his journey and then use our lives, mine and yours, as a third reference point and, and try to have a sense of the, uh, the stages of the journey. So, The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Oliver. So I want to name seven stages initially And then I'll come back and talk about each of them. And then we can discuss things together. (laughs) Okay. So here are the seven stages. And I won't say so fully what each of them means, but some of them are, most of them are pretty self-explanatory. So the first stage is taking life for granted. Sort of being with our ordinary, habitual, unexamined lives. The second stage 
is having some sense of the unsatisfactoriness of the taken-for-granted life develop. Some unsatisfactoriness develops or inadequacy or certain questions arise, you know, sometimes from suffering, can poke a hole in our taken-for-granted lives. The third, and these are sometimes somewhat interconnected, but I'm distinguishing the seven just to bring out the different aspects. The third is a call for something more than the ordinary, than the taken for granted. The fourth is when we depart, we make a kind of break with the taken for granted life, the ordinary, the habitual, the everyday. The fifth is when we go through difficulties or struggles and we increasingly find something like what in the poem is calling, the uh, Mary Oliver calls the new voice, one's own authentic voice. You, this is a stage where there are challenges and difficulties, but it's a kind of purification process where we learn and we develop. <clears throat> and related to that is the sixth stage, in which we awaken, at least to some extent. We come into, we might say, greater wisdom, greater love, greater compassion, at least to some extent. And the seventh stage is, we re-enter our ordinary world. (laughs) We come back home, in other words. Okay? So... I'll go through each of these and give examples again with, again, the three reference points, the poem, the life of the Buddha, and our lives. I may bring in other people's lives too, but I'll I'll invite us at times to look at how these phases manifest in our own lives. And I'm naming the stages as distinct. At times they can be quite interconnected, right? They're... Uh, we can be having a sense of unsatisfactoriness at the same time that we have a call for more, right? That can occur. And and some of our journeys may take us away from home. And we may actually go on on an actual, we may go on a real physical journey where we go to another country or we do something differently But the journey can also be more internal. We may go on a deep journey, staying at home, raising the kids, right? And that can, but there can be a sense of an inner journey. Something happens. And there's a way in which, interestingly, the journey can take a phase of our lives. We can have a kind of five year or 10 year exploration. But there's also a sense in which we may go on a journey every time we meditate, right? We can have a journey that occurs in an afternoon or a week. We can go on a retreat. Retreats are very much like journeys. We leave home, we encounter the ordinary habitual mind, and we learn things, and then we go back home. So retreats are very much like this. And so the the journey can also be more cyclical. It can be something that maybe we go on some steps of the journey, then we come back home, then we go out again, and maybe we do steps one one through three, we come back home, have demands in our lives, and we don't quite finish it, but then we go back and do stages three through five, and so forth. So a lot of different ways that this this can manifest. And so I'm, I'm offering this partly as a kind of a map that you, we can say, okay, how does this connect with my own life? And it, perhaps it can be helpful in giving some orientation. One of the great um, yogis of the 20th century said this, if you don't know where you are going, 
you will wind up somewhere else. That was Yogi Berra. Everyone know who Yogi Berra was, I guess. <laughs> you know, uh, <clears throat> professional baseball player for the uh, New York Yankees. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so stage number one. Uh, taking life for granted. This is sort of being with the ordinary habitual life. This may be simply living the life that our culture gives us without questioning it. Just having life just like everyone else. We may be happy, we may be not happy, but we're in some ways not looking deeply necessarily or not raising questions. We take things for granted to a certain extent. We live with habits. And this is very common, right? And there's a way in which um, we're actually tailored to have a lot of habits. You know, the brain really likes routines. It likes us to have habits. It likes us to do routines, do them... The brain thinks routines and habits where we don't question anything and do things always the same way is very efficient. And one neuroscientist said, the brain does not like consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) Inefficient. And so it's better just to... So there's there's something that we're a little bit wired to uh, not question. I think we're also wired to question and look deeply, right? And this is, you know, this, again, can be a good life. There can be happiness, but it's not necessarily going deeply. You know, we're, you know, for us, this may be really uh, living with a habitual mind, ordinary mind, the conventions of the society, and so forth. And we may be... Again, we may be having a difficult life, a protected life. The Buddha was raised in order not to question and not to have any difficult experiences. He was of royalty. He lived in a palace. His parents had received a prophecy when he was born that he would either become a great ruler or a great sage. They had a very, very strong preference for number one. (laughs) And they also were told when your son sees a sick man, an old man, a dead body, and a monk, he will want to leave the palace and become a spiritual seeker. And so they protected him from all the signs of suffering. They hoped that he would live a life entirely of pleasure and indulgence, which is the life he was given. He, he said later, I was most delicately brought up, right? protected and so forth. And so all of us have aspects of that ordinary habitual experience, right? We all take certain things for granted. We all have routines. And routines are very useful, can be very useful. I have a routine that I use every time I come to Spirit Rock where I make sure that I'm bringing what I need. And when it's a little routine I do, and very useful, no problem. (laughs) Right? And But sometimes the routines and the habits can block out things. This was the, it was the way for the Buddha, and I think for all of us, in certain ways, we get into habitual living. And there's certain things we don't see or we don't want to open up to. At a certain point, this is the second stage, there can be a sense of unsatisfactoriness that comes into the more ordinary habitual life. Sometimes it's suffering. You know, we may have some kind of suffering that um, makes it hard to just stay with what we were given. You know, there may be a loss. We may encounter death through the loss of a loved one. And it may say, what is this life about? 
Do I just live and then die and is that all there is? We may encounter other kinds of suffering. I know for myself, probably at age four or five, I was really confused by what I found to be the cruelty of other kids. You know, it was like, what is that about? You know, what is going on? And not, you know, just in the next few years, also seeing and learning about more socially induced suffering. I grew up in Maryland and I went to elementary school with uh, a lot of African-American kids who lived on the other side of the railroad tracks. And when I would go to where they lived, I saw unpaved roads and I saw shacks. And, you know, I was going to school with them and I didn't understand. Age six, age seven, age eight, what is that about? What is going on? So for some of us, a sense of injustice may have opened something up. Probably when I was nine or 10, I learned about the Holocaust, you know, and being of Jewish ancestry. And, you know, my gosh, you know, uh, learned about, I think I I read the book uh, by William Shirer called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, right? And it was like, whoa, you know, and you may have had similar experiences. Again, it could be different things raise questions, you know, why is there so much conflict and pain and suffering in the world? You know, or maybe personal suffering. Um, you know, how do, I, how do I make sense of what I find in the world? How do I live authentically when I see people around me always not living authentically? Or, or sometimes living not authentically? What do I do when I encounter oppression or injustice? <coughs> the African-American sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, towards the end of his life, I think at the age of 89, he decided to write three novels. It's a little bit like there just was the, like the birthday, I think, 100th birthday of Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Some of you know that great San Francisco poet. And I think he came out with a novel at age 100, right? Something like that. Yeah. And so W.E. Du Bois set out to write three novels at the age of 89, and he completed them, right? And at the heart of one of the novels were four questions, which could really be questions that are unsettling. First was, how does integrity face oppression? Number two, what does honesty do in the face of deception? Number three, what does decency do in the face of insult? And how does virtue meet brute force? It's intense questions, right? And so we may have our version of them. You know, I wonder, you know, what were some of the things that led you to not take things for granted anymore. You know, to kind of make a hole in the taking for granted life. And I'll just invite you maybe to hear from a few people, like maybe one or two or three words, not a story, but just a few words. And I'll, if you say them, I'll, I'll repeat them. Anyone think of what, what led you not to take things for granted? Yeah. Yeah, uh, fell off the motorcycle at age 65, an accident, and something opened up, right? Yeah, with the suffering. Others, yeah. Having kids. Having kids, yeah. How many can relate to that? <laughs> okay. Others, yeah. Having cancer and survived it, yeah. How many were woken up by an illness? Yeah. Others. Yeah. Uh, seeing extreme poverty. Seeing extreme poverty. Yeah, and just wondering how can I live the same way I was living, right? Something like that. 
How many can relate to that? Some poverty, injustice opens you up. Yeah, others. Maybe one or two more. Someone someone dying. Actually, someone dying right next to you in your vicinity. Yeah. And then maybe one last one in the back. Sorry? Partner passed away. Yeah, so a death often. And it opens things up. You know, we don't take things for granted quite in the same way. For the Buddha, what occurred was precisely related to the prophecy he had received. Remember it said, when your son will see, uh, what, a sick man, a, what was it, a sick man, a corpse. What was a sick man, an old man? Let's see, yeah, the last was a monk, let me see. A sick man, an old man, a corpse, and then a monk. And for some reason, the Buddha, on one evening, felt called to go beyond the palace. A metaphor, right? It's going beyond the safe, known world. So the Buddha went out from the palace, and on the first night, he encountered a, uh, an old man. Right? Was it? Am I getting this wrong? A sick man, sorry. sorry. A sick man. He, he encountered a man who was sick. And he had never seen a sick man before. He had never seen illness. And he was shocked, right? And then he went back into the palace. And the next night, he saw an old man. He had never seen someone who was aged. The third night, he went out and saw a dead body, a corpse, and was getting totally shocked. He was really, you know, this was, had a big impact. And the fourth night, he went out and he saw a wandering yogi, a monk, and he had never known what that was. And he was totally rattled. He said, how can I live? Do I just live in order to get old or get sick, old, and die? Is there something else? Is there something deeper? And he had this very intense inner process occur, start occurring. And we'll find out what happens when we get to stage three and four. Okay. So, again, this may be connected. Uh, the third stage I'm calling the call for something more. You know, we're not only in some ways, uh, what, uh, little disoriented questions arise, but we also start having a sense, I want something more, I want more meaning. I want to understand. I want to uh, live a more authentic life. You know, I see the way I've made all sorts of compromises, maybe. I don't want to live like that. Whatever it is, you know, each of us will have a, a different version of that. And uh, for the Buddha, it was like, what is, is there some other truth in life other than just having pleasure all the time and then dying? Just seeking for pleasure, avoiding the unpleasant and dying, right? Doesn't that formula explain a good part of our lives? We look for experiences we like. We try to avoid experiences we don't like. And we just do that as much as we can. Right? Is there something more? And so we may have a sense of a call. You know, Sometimes it can come from mysterious uh, places. Right? Maybe we have dreams. How many of you have had dreams that were significant for your, your coming into more Awareness, yeah. It can be dreams, mysterious dreams. Sometimes you meet someone, right? You meet someone. Maybe you have a friend who has been exploring territory. I know that for myself, I had this experience when I was about 20 years old and I was in college. Uh, the teacher Ram Das came to my university and he just sort of uh, said, I'll, you know, there, I saw a sign that said he'll be talking in a chapel uh, you know, for four days in a row in the afternoon. I didn't know who he was, 
When I was in college, I was primarily a political activist. That's how I saw myself, you know. And uh, I didn't know anything about spirituality. My parents had kind of rebelled against religion when they were like teenagers. And so I I was not raised with much religion. I was raised as a uh, kind of a scientifically minded political radical. (laughs) It was pretty nice. Uh, or something like that, more or less that territory. And um, so I went to hear Ram Dass and you know, there were like 10 people there. He wasn't well known. And he had just come back from India and he was just talking about this spiritual stuff. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I just sat there, something was calling me. I, I went back there like almost every day for three or four hours and just hung out. Like, what was that about? You know, so something was interesting and maybe you've had, maybe again, maybe you've met someone or something, something opened up from, from someone, uh, you know, what's, you know, how, how does that call for something more? Again, maybe it's about personal authenticity or maybe you meet someone, you know, that uh, seems just more alive than, than you, you know, or some, someone who really has been exploring something, whatever whatever it is. Um, and so it's interesting. When did you hear a call? What was your call? Maybe it was a call to start meditating. You know, or maybe it was um, a call to come to Spirit Rock or to uh, um, do a retreat or or whatever, maybe maybe it wasn't about meditation, but maybe it was about uh, um, doing a workshop, exploring new territory, or bringing bringing out your creativity, or you know, dedicating yourself to art that you had let go of a long time ago. Maybe coming back to music or whatever, or art. So, when did you hear the call? Just think for yourself. What was important for you? And in the fourth stage, there is departure from the ordinary life in some way. Again, this can be something where we actually go on a real journey, a physical journey, or it can be more internal. Again, we stay at home, we raise the kids, but something's happening inside, right? Or we actually don't change the externals, but something's happening in a different way inside. So the journey can be uh, inner or outer or both, you know. In the poem it says, you knew what you had to do. The first line says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. So interestingly, when we actually set out to move and to depart, we get both internal and external pushback, right? Our friends notice changes in us and they start maybe criticizing us. You're into that spiritual <laughs> gobbledygook. Yeah. Yeah. Get your head straight, right? Or whatever. You know, you felt the old tug at your ankles. You know, and the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. I interpret that as both our own voices and other people's voices basically saying, stay small, stay the way you are. How many can relate to that have heard that as you change, right? And so we have to navigate that. It's not easy. The Buddha faced a lot of resistance. He eventually chose, as I think most of us know, to leave the palace. But he didn't just do it abruptly. He thought about it. And he, he, his parents told him all sorts of reasons why it was a bad idea. Right? And so there was, there was this resistance, inner and outer, to following one's own vocation. His father told him, turn away the desire of your heart. Whoa. Have you had people say, don't follow your true heart's desire? 
Maybe not in those words, but in other words. So we get resistance when we follow what's deeper for us. That happens. Right? We get resistance and we get inner resistance and we get outer resistance. In the text with the Buddha, there were devas who were like angelic figures who were saying, yes, go away, Gotama, leave. And, but he had a very hard time. His parents were telling him that. He also had a wife and child, right? And it was very, very hard for him to leave. There also was the figure maybe of, in the text it's called Mara, who's the personification of evil, you know, we could take this maybe as inner doubts saying, don't leave. You know, you're much better off staying and so forth. And so, again, we can ask ourselves, how did you start to depart from the taken for granted life? What were the steps you took? Internally or externally, what was important for you? Did you leave a job? Did you... Again, can, sometimes it can be traumatic, sometimes not traumatic. Maybe you just said, from now on, I want to, want to meditate or I want to you know, devote some of my time to these pursuits. Maybe, again, maybe creativity or something that really called your heart. The fifth stage I'm calling finding our authentic uh, being and voice Uh, This is uh, where there are difficulties and challenges, but we work things out. Maybe we encounter our inner conditioning in a strong way. We go through what sometimes is called a purification process. You know, in the poem, you know, uh, it it was already late enough in a wild night. And this is after we've had to uh, deal with all the voices with their bad advice. And we come out, it's already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, stormy, right? Not easy, right? Uh, And we slowly, in that process, the stars begin to burn through the sheets of clouds. We work through something, and interesting metaphors in the poem for coming into more clarity. And this is something that in the life of the Buddha, you know, we, we don't always know that, but the Buddha had uh, six years, and a lot of it was struggle. He didn't just have, you know, onwards and upwards to spiritual awakening. It was not like that. You know, we may not see that so clearly, but there were all sorts of mental and physical challenges. He studied with some teachers. They wanted him to continue and become a teacher, but somehow he felt it wasn't enough, so he had doubts that went against his teachers. That was not easy. That was hard, right? How do you do that? How do you, and I'm sure there were discussions where they told him, you're wrong, Gotama. You're making a big mistake. He had inner doubts, right? He had a a lot of physical difficulties. He, at uh, one point, took on a very uh, ascetic path. He, uh, He starved his body. He ate very little. His body got very weak. Had very profound physical difficulties, even when he was getting close to awakening, he had voices come. You know, in the text, it's called the voice of Mara, sort of like, again, the evil figure. But we could interpret those psychologically, maybe a self-doubt, right? Am I really doing the right thing? And so, very, uh, very difficult time. And again, we go through this. This is, in a way, right at the heart of the um, spiritual path where we work through what blocks our heart from love and blocks our mind from wisdom. And we know all of what does that, right? I just spent a month with people helping to guide them in some way through what we might call this purification process. You know, a lot of self-judgment, right? Conditioned to have self-judgment takes time to work through that, to develop and open the heart. Sometimes the heart's blocked. Sometimes there is pain from the past that makes it hard to open. We have to open up. Maybe there's trauma or there's pain or there's uh, something that makes it very hard to see clearly. Maybe our minds are just caught in 
old tape loops, right? And all sorts of loops that just keep us going around in circles. We have to work with all of that, right? And it's um, uh, amazing that, you know, in such a, I think, a good fortune that we have very good methods for doing that now. And I think we're still growing and learning how do we integrate the psychological dimension with meditative approaches, with work with trauma, work with social conditioning. We all have massive social conditioning around race, gender, age, sexual orientation, all these things that really, uh, you know, affect our minds. How do we work through this? How do we, how do we gain a clearer mind, a wiser being, a heart open? So this is what I'm calling the fifth stage. And again, the Buddha spent a lot of years. He developed concentration. He developed these different methods. Uh, it was often very hard. You know, he eventually decided to leave this ascetic path. He remembered that he had had this wonderful experience when he was a child, maybe 13 or 14, of sitting under a rose apple tree and going into a beautiful state. And he said, pleasure is not the problem. He had been following a path where he was told pleasure is the problem. So there was learning. There was a process. And again, for us, it may be, how do I learn to be with suffering? How do I work with the pain that's there from what's happened in the past? How do I have that not dominate me? How do I open my heart? How do I work with anger? or confusion, or fear. From, uh, from the poet Rilke. Go to the limits of your longing. Flare up like flame. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. From the poet Hafiz from Persia. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. The poet David White. Those who will not slip beneath the the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place where we cannot breathe, We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear. So we actually find that in many ways, the light comes through the holes in our being where there's been suffering. Mysterious. That we, how do we have this journey occur so that we actually learn from what's difficult, what's challenging. That's where we need community, we need teachers, we need mentors, we need good practices. Thomas Merton, we only know love when the heart turns to stone. We only learn about love when the heart turns to stone. So what have been some of your challenges that you were able to take as learning. Some of your own purification process. It's a beautiful line from the uh, Tibetan Lojong teachings, which says, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. (laughs) Turn all difficulties into learning. Take learning as your framework. Sixth stage, we're almost there. Okay. Sixth stage is awakening. For the Buddha, full. For us, as far as I know, partial. Right? But there is awakening. We have insight. We learn. We come to understanding. Something new happens. We break through. The Buddha had a sense that 
some deep insight was possible. And he was very emaciated. He had the insight to turn away from his ascetic path and a a gopi who was a, a milkmaid offered him milk, which was against his ascetic precepts, and he took the milk. And this brought more strength into his being. And it was a very short time after that that there was awakening. So I like to interpret that as the Buddha following this hyper-masculine path. And he took in the nurturance of the feminine. And there was a kind of balancing of the masculine and feminine in him, which was led to his awakening, connected with his awakening. It's one way to frame it which I think is relevant, very relevant for our times. And so, supported by the milk, he vowed to sit. He said, let my, only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood in my body dry up. Not until I attain supreme enlightenment will I give up my meditation seat. And he sat and there was awakening. There was a process where there still were doubts. He still had final doubts and final challenges, but something, something came through. And he said, I, have, I too have found the ancient path, the ancient trail traveled by the awakened ones of old. And so for us, there may be significant awakening. We come, our hearts open in certain ways, where we come to deep insight, something shifts in us. We let go of some old wound or some old limitation. We see something. And again, you may reflect and be helpful to reflect what were some of your awakenings? What, what are one or two of your awakenings where something really significant happened, where, you, where there was a breakthrough? How do we each awaken in large or small ways. In a way, when we meditate and we're lost in thought and we come back to the breath, that's an awakening. When we come to be present or when we're with someone maybe who's having difficulty and our hearts are there and we're open, that's a kind of awakening. So awakening can be dramatic, but it also can be small. And then we're at the last stage, which is, of course, returning to the everyday world, having been on the journey. But we return, typically it's said, with gifts. There's something that we bring back to the world. We've changed. We come back in a different way. We have fresh vision. Maybe we have creativity. We have found our voice. So in the poem, there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. So we come back to our everyday lives and, you know, it may look the same. It may look different. The Buddha came back. He came back to his family. At first he didn't think he would teach because he thought that uh, people wouldn't understand. He thought it was too simple. But then he was convinced to teach. And he began 45 years of teaching, but he came back to the, to the everyday world. And so in some ways we come back, things are, things are the same, but they're also different. You know, maybe we come back to the same circumstances. Again, for many of us, the journey and the difficulties, the purification, the awakening, maybe, it's, maybe we don't actually leave our home or our job, or our family, but something's going on internally, right? And we come back. There's some way that we're back, but things are different. We have found, found our voice. There's a very, some of you know, there's a very nice story from the Zen tradition that brings out this sense of uh, uh, coming back to the ordinary, except the ordinary isn't ordinary in the same way anymore. We can call it the ordinary becomes the extraordinary ordinary. (laughs) Extraordinary ordinary. So this is from uh, the Zen tradition. Before I studied Zen, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. 
When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, this is the awakening, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. You know, there's awakening things. Ah, I see through. It's not the way I thought. But now that I have got the very substance, I am at rest. For now I see that mountains are once again mountains and rivers are once again rivers. So, I hope that's clear. (laughs) Okay. So, Zen's very nice because it doesn't spell it everything literally. So, you have to, what does that mean? (laughs) Right. So... So again, we can ask ourselves, how have I brought my awakening into my everyday lives? How, how, how has it changed things? How, do, is it, how is it both ordinary but not the way it used to be? Maybe we would call it extraordinary ordinary. So I'll finish by reading the poem again. Listen for the stages. Listen for the different stages. I think you can hear them in the poem. You know, that stage of taking things for granted, having a sense of questioning or unsatisfactoriness, some hole in the ordinary. Thirdly, uh, a yearning for something more. Fourthly, in some ways we decisively depart Fifth, we go through a process. It can be a difficult process of learning, of encounter with challenges. Develop our own voice more. Sixth, and really connect with that awakening in some way. And then seventh, we come back to the, the world. But changed with gifts. So the journey by Mary Oliver One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So thank you so kindly for your attention. We have some time. If there is any uh, question, uh, a reflection, anything you'd like to say, and we'll use the mics. I think we use the mics and we bring them to you, right? Who Who is the mic holder? Okay. I think we have one on the my right and one over on the other side. Anyone like to ask anything or... Could be to just share something up front here. So once you come back, does the journey just start all over again? Once you come back, does the journey start all over again? Great question. Yeah. Um, again, there. You know, the Buddha kind of did one journey and it was done, right? I don't think any of us have done that, right? And so, yeah, it's like we may, we may go through a journey where in a sense we go through all of these six stages in some way and come back and we may, you know, the, the ideal seems to be to keep the journey going, right? How do we keep the learning going uh, so that we're continually in a way uh, going through these stages, like I said, we may go through these six stages or seven stages in doing a one-week retreat or even doing one hour of meditation. We may have something happen where there's some learning. 
So I think the question is, how do we keep the process going without just going back to the first stage where we take things for granted and we're kind of not paying attention, right? That's the real question because all of these stages can occur. Particularly the first stage of being taking things for granted is there for all of us for a certain amount of the time, right? How do you not get stuck in that? How do you, how after you learn something significant, do you just not go back to the old habits? Not easy, right? And this is again where teachers, community, a place like Spirit Rock, friends, books, and so forth play a big role. But that's, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it, yeah. How do we keep the learning going? Yeah, great, thank you. We have one here and then one in the middle here. Hi, Hi. thank you. Is there a detachment in there somewhere? Is there a detachment? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, detachment can mean different things, but there clearly would need to be some kind of detachment from our old habits or old patterns, we can use it that way. You know, so we can use different words for this, but you know, there has to be some willingness maybe sometimes to give up certain habits or to give up certain routines or even pleasures, right? To, to seek something new. So we may use different words for this. Sometimes in the Buddhist world, the word used is renunciation. We don't, you know, which, which in its essence means not so much a renunciation of outward things, but of inward bad habits, right? Can I let go, in other words? Can I let go of things? That could be a kind of, can I detach myself from some of my bad habits in order to learn something, you know, or in order to set out on a, a quest, and another meaning of detachment can be more a sense of equanimity, which is a very important quality that develops as we learn, you know, to have, have a deep sense of inner balance that can keep one's center increasingly no matter what happens. It's not easy, right? Not easy at all. And a lot of the learning is to see how we lose our center when certain things happen. I lose my center when I have interpersonal difficulties or I lose my center when I get angry, right? Or I lose my center when I develop negative storylines about myself and my life or others or whatever. And so equanimity develops when we've learned how to be with these forms of stories, reactivity, emotions, and learn to develop some balance where we don't just get caught in them. And that also is an aspect of detachment. So, but, so equanimity is a major quality that we develop. So thank you. Hi. Okay, my name is Cindy, um, and I'm a visitor here. And uh, so this is my second Monday with you, so thank you very much. And you talked a lot about the retreats that you do. Yeah. And I just sort of wonder if you would ever consider doing, like, the ultimate retreat where, like, you would take people to India and Nepal and, like, lead them through Buddha's life. Lead people through? Buddha's life, like a pilgrimage. Oh, the Buddha's life, yeah. Yeah. I've never personally done that. Uh, I highly recommend If anyone wants to organize it, <laughs> might be open. I have friends who've done that. You know, my, my dear friend uh, John Travis has done a lot of pilgrimages like that, and there there can be quite wonderful. Yeah, but to it'd be wouldn't it be amazing to actually do a pilgrimage where you go th- to the different places of the Buddha's life, maybe using a framework like what I use tonight, and then apply it to your own life. Right? Here's where the Buddha was lost in pleasure. Okay. Let's have a lot of... While we're here, let's have a lot of sweets and wonderful food and indulge in pleasures. You know, part of the trip. <laughs> right? And then, and then, okay, here we are where the Buddha 
faces the four heavenly messengers, right? And faces the, you know, the, uh, uh, what, the old person, the, what was it? The, the sick, I got the order wrong. The old person, the sick person, the corpse, and the yogi. So we, we you know, we encounter those and we, we see what it means in our own lives. That'd be a really wonderful way to study the life. You know, we could do that right here also. We could study the life of the Buddha and use something like that model. That'd be very, I think it could be very, very wonderful. Maybe I should do it. <laughs> Thank you. Other could be sharing a story or something that's relevant even of your own, you know, an aspect of your own journey. Yeah, I, I'm, my name is Dan. Thank you very much. Um, I um, <clears throat> when, today when uh, <clears throat> before I came here, I was. Um, I was uh, contemplating the things, um, what my journey is in my life and where I want to go and what I want to do, which I'd spent a lot of time doing. A little closer. And and I was uh, thinking it's it's very difficult at times to, um, to let go and take the risk of um, following following your dreams or the things right. that you really want right. that you feel like, that you feel that you need to do or want to do um, and could you hold it a little closer to your mouth yeah, yeah. and so I was um, so when I was so today I was I was thinking about that stuff and I, and I felt like um, <clears throat> you know it was like all the things you're describing here tonight was very uh, relevant to what I was feeling today. Yeah. And, um, and, and you know, there was a part of me that was like this very bad feeling of like, well, you know, just letting go of that and kind of giving up and just, um, you know, my life just being one of trying to seek pleasure and avoid pain, like what you were saying, yeah. which seems like a, just a terrible way to go. <laughs> yeah. Know, but like um, where I want to have more meaning. Yeah, I find more meaning in my life. So it was just I'm just I'm not I don't really have any questions. I'm just saying I'm just, glad yeah. to be here tonight. That yeah, beautiful. And again, the name was Dan. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. It's real. How many can relate to that? Look look around. This is yeah. So you know, I think trust trust the process in a way. Trust the fermentation. You know, it's like just having the questions or the doubts and letting them be there can be quite important because it has a, a life of its own. And, you know, it's not, it's like, you know, one thing I was thinking of also is that, you know, uh, in the poem it says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. I was thinking that sometimes we kind of know what we have to do, but we don't begin. <laughs> and then a week later, I kind of know what I need to do, but we don't begin. And then Five years later, oh, I should really, you know. So it's a, it's a challenging process, right? And I think, I think ultimately to have compassion for our own journey, it's very helpful to be with like-minded people. A lot of you know, one third or more of the group raised their hands that said they could resonate with what you were saying. Imagine if you all talked together. It would really, it would build, I think, one's confidence to, to take the risk at the right time. And sometimes it's like that, right? And sometimes, you know, and sometimes when we wait and we don't quite do what we know what we want to do, at a certain point, we just have to do it. You know, so, it, you know, some of us may take those steps more easily and sometimes it's harder. But I think to really to, uh, there, there's a place where we can really start to trust what we recognize as our inner voice like what the Quakers call the still small voice. And it's not easy to get in touch with it sometimes. I know for myself, there was a point, I remember in a retreat where I was doing walking meditation and I was um, 
feeling fear in relation to a person walking next to me. And I said, why am I feeling fear? And I asked that question really, really deeply. And I got a response. Like something within me answered my own question. I had never had that happen before in that way. And the answer I got was, this person feels powerful. I'm afraid of the power. Interesting. But more importantly was that that I said, wow, this is cool. I can ask a deep question and get an authentic answer. (laughs) Right? Right? I started to call it my no bullshit voice. Right? And I would, and I just started using it. I think I'll just ask another question. (laughs) And so... Getting in touch with that can be, is really crucial. Not easy. Like I said, I, I was in my 20s when I did that. And before that, I don't think I was in touch with that kind of voice. Right? So it comes. So thank you for sharing, Dan. And it's a, it's a challenge, but I think really trust what's there that wants <clears throat> that authenticity. And uh, again, friends and those uh, sharing that approach is really, really crucial as well as coming places like here, because we can all tell stories of something like that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to finish up now. We're at, we're at time. So let me invite you to have a quiet moment and see what from the evening spoke to you. And is there, an, is there an intention coming out of the evening for you? Just, just for yourself. And then we close in a traditional way with what's called the dedication of merit, which is that we remember that we do our practice and we inquire, as we've done this evening, through the theme of the journey. We do this for ourselves very much, but we also do it for others. And we offer, ultimately, the fruits of our evening for the benefit of all, knowing that we are part of all beings. We are part of the all. So thank you very much, and may our journeys continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.